The Book Club is brought to you in association with Charles Stanley Community, providing our clients, colleagues and friends with practical support and conversation. Find out more at Charles Stanley Community. Hello and welcome to Spectator Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Rutger Bregman, the Dutch historian who, well, became famous or notorious around the world when he sat on an equality panel on Davos and suggested that rather than maybe flying Bono in and stroking their chins, um, the assembled bigwigs ought simply to try paying their taxes. Um, Went slightly viral, that. Anyway, Rutger's new book is called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And in it, he argues, if I'm representing him right, that like Jessica Rabbit in the movie, Human beings aren't bad, we're just drawn that way. Rutger, welcome. Thanks. This book aims to upset, well, a couple of thousand years of established wisdom. What set you on the path? That's a good question. You know, I, it's a hopelessly ambitious book. It's maybe a, too ambitious, a book, the kind of book that you can only write when you're, when you're a bit younger, right? When you're, you're still suffering from all this hubris. But I hope that it's, uh, that it's worthwhile because the reason I wrote it is that in the past 15 to 20 years, there's really been this sort of silent revolution in science that so many scientists from very diverse disciplines, uh, anthropologists, sociologists, archeologists, you name it, they've been moving from a quite cynical view of human nature to a much more hopeful view of human nature. And while I was researching the book, I started to notice that they often didn't know it from each other, right? Because they're so specialized, all these brilliant specialists doing their work in the ivory tower of the academy or something like that. And then they don't notice what's going on in the field next to theirs. I literally had this uh, experience while talking to a psychologist who's done some brilliant research into the so-called bystander effect. You know, what happens when there's a local emergency, someone's drowning or someone's attacked in the street. And um, for decades, we believe that people don't do much especially if they see other people who are around and they're like, mm, well, it's not my responsibility. That we, That's what we used to believe for a long time based on laboratory experiments. But now she, Marie Lindegaard uh, is her name, she did new research based on CCTV footage, you know, how people behave in real life, and discovered that actually in 90% of all cases, people help each other. So she was telling me about the research and I was then telling her about things that are happening in biology at the same time, where biologists are not talk- now talking about survival of the friendliest, which is about this process in which for millennia was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. And then she said to me, oh my God, so it's happening there as well. And then I thought, okay, this is a book. I should, someone should put this all together. Can you start maybe by giving us a sense of the evolutionary perspective, because you have this kind of quite catchy notion of what you call homo puppy. It all starts with the question, what makes us special? Right? Why us? Why did we conquer the globe? Why is the president of the United States not a bonobo or a chimpanzee or a Neanderthal? Right? Some people would say that he is, but he's not. <laughs> I was biting my tongue. <laughs> yeah. So what makes us so special? And the first inclination people have is to say well we must be really smart right because we can do all these awesome things built pyramids and built spaceships etc but then if you do intelligence tests and you let a human toddler of around two years old compete with a pig then usually the pig wins so that is 
problematic if you think about us eating bacon, obviously, uh, but that's another book. It's it's also, yeah, sort of interesting. Then you start wondering, is it something else? Are we so smart or, or well, that's not the case. Are we then so, um, so powerful, so strong? Well, not. Again, if you would have a boxing match with a chimpanzee or a Neanderthal, you would probably lose. I mean, I, d- I wouldn't recommend that. So what scientists now believe is that actually the true superpower of human beings is not that we're so smart, not that we're so strong. Uh, it's actually our ability to connect with one another. Our bodies have been designed by evolution, sort of this blind design process, obviously, uh, so that we can actually work together. And I think the best example here is our unique ability to blush. So it was for me one of the most striking discoveries while writing this book is that human beings are one of the very few species in the whole animal kingdom that have this ability to blush. Chimpanzees don't do it, you know, other primates don't do it, other mammals don't do it, but we do it. We involuntarily give away our feelings to someone else, and this is a way for us to establish trust. There are other things in our face that are very special as well. We actually have the most expressive face in the whole animal kingdom. If you look at our eyes, it's really interesting. Isn't it hard to find a metric to say a face is more expressive or not? I mean, anthropomorphism means presumably we, we see more expression on our face than... That's true, that's true. But let, let, let me try to convince you. Um, so we've got a huge amount of sort of minor muscles in our face that help us to come up with all kinds of different expressions. It's also our eyebrows help us here. If you compare us to Neanderthals, for example, or to ourselves 50,000 years ago. Our eyebrows are much more expressive, but maybe most interestingly, our eyes are very unique. There's this so-called cooperative eyes hypothesis now in biology. And what what scientists point out is that we are the only primates of all all the primates who have white around our eyes. So I can see that you're looking at me right now through the screen. You know, I know that you're what you're that you're looking at the screen. And that's because there's white around your eyes, around your irises. All the other primates. They have dark there. So it's a little bit like poker players wearing shades. While we just, again, involuntarily give away our gazes to everyone else. So this is our true superpower, our species, our ability to connect with one another. And that's, I think, the reason why we conquered the globe while the Neanderthals are gone. So the idea is if a human being hits on a new invention or a new technique, it spreads yeah. much, much yeah, faster exactly. than it does with, with Neanderthals. Exactly, exactly. The, there's a one anthropologist, Joseph Henrik, who makes this wonderful comparison between sort of two kinds of primates. So imagine you have a planet that is inhabited by the geniuses and the copycats. And the geniuses, well, they, they are really smart. So they come up with inventions on their own, but they're not very social. So if they learn something, they only share it with a couple of friends. Now, then imagine the copycats. They're not very smart. They're a little bit like us. They're a bit dumb, actually. But every once in a while, it happens, a miracle happens, and, and a copycat comes up with something. And then it immediately spreads, because the copycats are like, you know, they, they tell everything to everyone, and they learn very quickly from each other. In the long run, the copycats will become much, much smarter than the geniuses, because they can build on each other. You know, Isaac Newton once said that he stood on the shoulders of giants. I think that's wrong. As a species, we stand on the shoulder of dwarves, right? That's, that, is our, that is what we're good at. If you're... You're saying, I mean, you know, sort of the center of the argument of the book seems to be that cooperation and with it kind of kindness, altruism, fellow feeling, you know, compassion are kind of wired into us. Now, is that what you call a theory of human nature? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder how useful you think it is to talk about human nature, because a lot of the arguments on the other side will say mm-hmm. human nature is to be selfish. You know, our institutions harness, channel, protect against the deleterious mm-hmm. effects of that. I mean, mm-hmm. do you think human nature is a useful thing to talk about? Hmm. I think it is, and I think we should. Obviously, human nature is highly malleable, right? And, and it is in our nature to be cultural, right? And, and people can become very different according to the circumstances in which they find themselves. But then at the same time, you have to remember that for 95% of our history, we were nomadic hunter-gatherers. We lived in a certain kind of environment. And that was an environment that was in many ways quite different from the way it is right now. You know, uh, it was much more egalitarian. We had more freedom to relax. We had a shorter work week of around 20 to 30 hours a week. We had relatively healthy lives. And I'm not saying that we can go back to live as nomadic hands together once again, but it is important to know where we come from so that we can have a, well, we sort of need a realistic view of who we are as a species so that we can then design our institutions around a more realistic view of human nature. Because this is the other important thing. Our view of who we are uh, can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we assume that most people are selfish, then we'll start to design our society in such a way that it will bring out the worst in each and every one of us. And I think that, well, we've seen quite a lot of that happening in the past 30 to 40 years, right? The assumption that people are selfish and then you have very hierarchical and competitive institutions. Uh, this is what you what you call somewhere in the book the nocebo effect. That, yeah. You know, you can, placebos can, can work for ill as well as for good. Wondering how much, I mean, you know, one of the arguments you make in the book, which I think is going to be one of the most contentious ones, mm-hmm. is to say that human beings are by nature kind and unselfish and, you know, until they get infected by a you know, negative set of institutions or cultural stereotypes are generally more likely to cooperate and, and you know, do good for one another. But that this, an exception is made for rich and powerful people, essentially, and that these guys are, you know, monsters. How, how, <laughs> not all of them. <laughs> not all of them, but, but that they tend to be. Now, yeah. how is it that that comes about in your, in your mind? Well, the very short summary of my book would be something like, most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. So this fact that power corrupts, it's something that I think psychologists, historians, and sociologists can really agree on. We've got so much evidence that shows that power is is a drug. It, 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 it damages the brain. If you put powerful people in brain scans, and if you look at the regions that are involved with empathy, for example doesn't really work that well anymore. So if, if, if the true superpower of, spe- of human beings is that we are all connected, right? We, we're not very smart. Again, we, we don't, we're not a MacBook Pro. The Neanderthals were MacBook Pros. We are like MacBook Airs, not very smart, but we're connected. We have Wi-Fi. Then the problem of those in power is that they often become disconnected from the Wi-Fi, right? The, their, their empathy doesn't work that well anymore. The, the psychological process of mirroring other people doesn't work that well anymore. They don't blush anymore. I mean, the whole concept of, of Boris Johnson blushing or Dominic Cummings blushing or Donald uh, Trump blushing, yeah, you can't imagine it. So when you have a hierarchical society, you end up with a very different kind of dynamic. Among nomad- nomadic hunter-gatherers, we had this whole process of survival of the friendliest. But now we often seem to be in a society where it's survival of the shameless, right? 
And where shamelessness is actually a superpower, where those without shame can do things that other people just can't. And uh, yeah, we're seeing the results. Okay, the question might be then, I mean, if the how mm-hmm. the institutions we've got, the things we've got that have produced this this society have evolved. If mm-hmm. the adaptive pressures mm-hmm. were towards cooperation throughout our you know, early history and in hunter-gathering, why would the adaptive pressures, be they cultural or evolutionary, mm-hmm. suddenly shift? Mm-hmm. If that's, if that's yeah. damaging to the human species, what, yeah. where's that coming from then? It's, it's one of the great questions. It's still one of the great mysteries of our history. Why did we ever start this experiment that we call civilization? Because if you look at it, the transition from a nomadic and together lifestyle to the lifestyle of a farmer and a city dweller was actually a total disaster. You know, life became much, much worse. We know that health deteriorated. We got all these infection diseases. The history of war started. We've got very little archaeological evidence for wars, you know, before the moment we became sedentary. Then suddenly we see, see a lot of this group violence. You could argue that patriarchy was invented. If you study nomadic togetherers, you know, they're like these proto-feminists, relatively egalitarian, also between the, uh, the sexes. But then everything changes. So the big question is, why did we do it? Why would you ever want to give up a relatively good lifestyle for the lifestyle of a peasant? And people may say, oh, is he saying civilization is bad? That's not the case. I mean, we've I've read Stephen Pinker. We've made so much progress. And yes, I've read Stephen Pinker as well. We have made a lot of progress, but that's very recent. You know, that's like a tiny percentage of, of the whole history of civilization of the past 10,000 years. And the question is, how sustainable is it, right? Maybe we're dancing on a volcano and we'll realize that, I don't know, a century or two centuries from now, it wasn't that sustainable. So it's a, it's a big gamble we've taken. And, and as I said, the question is, why did we ever start it? I think we walked into a trap. That's, that's I think, the best explanation. So with agriculture, for example, living a life of a farmer is much worse than the life of a nomadic and together. But we also know that in Mesopotamia, at some point 10,000 years ago, the lifestyle of a farmer became more attractive for a while because there were these places that were flooded regularly. So you had to do almost no work, just plant a little bit of crops here and there. And, you know, you got so much food for free. Then the climate changed. Then the population started growing and people also would have to start farming in places that, you know, were not as, as great. Then they couldn't go back anymore because already centuries had passed and being a nomadic and together is quite difficult. Yeah, you can't just easily learn that or uh, yeah, to transition back to that lifestyle. So it's a little bit like we walked into a trap and we couldn't go back anymore. The other important reason is obviously is that farmers, you know, agriculture supports a much higher population. So you can have more people living more miserable lives. You can raise larger armies. And so the nomadic and together has started to be pushed away uh, now, yeah, from the planet. You talk about... The idea that our culture, you know, shapes the way we the way we behave, which is an uncontroversial view. Mm-hmm. But you know, another of the questions arrive is is look, mm-hmm. you know, the culture as a whole. You know, if you look at the history of literature, you know, it begins mm-hmm. in the West at least with the Iliad, which is a story of of fighting. It mm-hmm. tends to emphasize, you know, most of the, mm-hmm. the most primal stories and myths we have emphasize the individual hero rather than the collective. They emphasize mm-hmm. conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. where again is that coming mm-hmm. from? You know, our culture isn't isn't something that sort of arrives from the sky. Yeah. Is it is it propaganda well, for the post-civilization world that we're seeing? I, I love this question. So 
we all know that history is being written by by the victors, right? So we don't have the histories of the savages and of the nomadic hunter-gatherers, right? They they didn't write the big books. I think you've got to remember that all these milestones of civilization, like the invention of money and the wheel and writing, they were used as tools of oppression in the first place, right? So the first pieces of writing we have are about debts that people have. Uh, if you read the first codes of law, it's about the kind of punishments slaves get when they escape. This is important to keep in mind here. Now, there's this very old theory in Western history, uh, and I think it's quite Western as well. Maybe you don't see it as much in, in other, uh, for example, Eastern cultures, but I'm not an expert on that. This idea that civilization is only a thin veneer and that deep down we're all selfish, we're savages, we're monsters. It goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks. You find it with Thucydides. You find it with the early Christian church fathers, St. Augustine, talking about the concept of original sin. You find it with the Enlightenment philosophers. I mean, you would expect some break here with Orthodox Christianity and the Enlightenment philosophers, but actually the similarities are maybe more important. David Hume, Adam Smith, especially Thomas Hobbes, talking about you know the selfish impulses of, of, of all of us. And then you look at modern capitalism and you, you wonder, what is this, the central dogma of neoliberal capitalism? Well, I think it is people are selfish and just deal with it. All these centuries... A cynical view of human nature has been in the interest of those in power. Because if people cannot trust each other, then we need a leviathan. Then we need someone to control us. We need the police, we need the army, etc., etc. If we can actually trust each other, if people are pretty decent and have evolved to be friendly, that is not good news for those in power. Because then maybe we don't need them anymore. Maybe we don't need all these CEOs and managers and career politicians, etc. So I think this is important to keep in mind when you study Western literature or Western culture or the things that have survived and have been passed on to the generation, right? What sort of purpose was being fulfilled here, right? Because we, yeah, we remember the, the sayings of those in power and their writings and philosophies, but we tend to forget the rest. Is scale an issue? I mean, in the sense that, you know, when you're talking about Leviathan, the need for a sort of centralised authority, I mean, the ability to know, to, you know, we, we all know that principle that, that you know, news, um, you know, it's, it's in, in this country we had a thing called drop the dead donkey, was the idea that, you know, a dead donkey locally is much more powerful and affecting to people than you know, 10,000 people dying in a landslide in a faraway country, that as civilization becomes larger than a family or tribal group, it's no longer possible to extend those tendrils of empathy yeah. quite as well. I, and you do talk a little bit about this. Yeah, and I'm highly sceptical about that claim. So people sometimes quote the number of 150, Dunbar's number. And the idea here is that people sort of cannot expand their social circle beyond that because, you know, we have cognitive limits or something like that. And after that, we need hierarchies and inequalities and myths, and etc. in order to sustain our cooperation. I don't buy that. In the first place, if you study nomadic and together cultures and their networks, they're actually much, much larger. So it's 150 is definitely not the limit. They, do you can... Sorry, do you take as read that the nomadic hunter-gatherer networks we see now, the sort of, as it were, vestigial ones in our mm -hmm. world are a sort of decent or, or perfect map onto our ancestral 
hunt together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is obviously a highly problematic piece of evidence. I think you really have to focus on nomadic hunter gatherers, but then still you can make the, the case that you know they already sort of have been tainted by civilization. I mean, the fact that they're being studied already is problematic, right? And may change their lifestyle. Still, I think it's striking though that if you study nomadic hunter gatherers in very different parts of the globe, you know, whether it's like in Alaska or in the Kalahari Desert, there are striking similarities in their cultures. For example, that they're egalitarian, that humbleness is really prerequisite. But uh, we also uh, can sort of make a, a different argument here is that our nomadic uh, or our networks had to be large. They simply had to be. I mean, we talked about these copycats, right? Learning so much from each other. We know that. You know, we're not that special. We're not that smart. So the only reason that we came up with all these inventions, the only explanation is that we must have had these larger networks. We, we see in the archaeological record that suddenly, around 40,000, 50,000 years ago, human beings started to come up with all these kinds of inventions, right? They started to come up with new fishing gears. They started to learn how to even across seas, etc., etc., burying the dead. So many cultural innovations. And you can only explain it if you assume that our networks were much larger than 150, because otherwise we would never have conquered the globe. Now, if you then look at modern organizations, I think there are a lot of great examples of decentralized organizations that perform really, really well, but are still quite egalitarian. In my book, I've got one example of an organization called Buurtzorg, uh, Neighborhood Care is the translation. And it's an organization of 15,000 employees. So that's way beyond the 150 limit. 15,000 employees who work in self-directed teams as nurses and have freedom to decide for themselves who they want to hire as colleagues, how they're going to schedule their week, what kind of additional education they need. And it works amazingly well. So they deliver healthcare at a lower price of higher quality and meanwhile the employees receive a higher higher salary than those competitors so yes i think there are a lot of good examples it's a challenge but there are a lot of good examples and ways to scale up while maintaining an egalitarian culture talking briefly about you you know you mentioned um well one of one of the problems you have to deal with in the book is we have extraordinary instances of you know, man's inhumanity to man. You know, obviously everyone has to come back to the Godwin's law and eventually the reductio ad hitlerum yeah. is like, look what happened with the Nazis. Is your argument there, roughly, that actually the instances we see of evil and viciousness on a wide scale is those perpetrators essentially trying to be too friendly just to their own side? I mean, you kind of fold them into your argument a little, don't you? A little bit, yes. And I think it's part of the explanation. It really is. So if you look at the great atrocities of the 20th century, so often you find people who are being motivated by things that we tend to like, right? Like uh, comradeship or loyalty or friendship. I've got one chapter in the book about German soldiers uh, you know, of the Wehrmacht fighting in 1944 and 1945 while it was clear that they were going to lose the war. But still, they kept fighting like maniacs. And Allied psychologists couldn't understand that they were like, these. they must have been totally brainwashed or what's going on here? Then they started interviewing prisoners of war and kept hearing the same answer, that these soldiers were fighting for their friends, kameradschaft, comradeship. Now, obviously, you need a very layered explanation here. So that explanation is not going to work for fanatical SS 
camp commanders and guards, etc. You need something else there. And in in a way, it's also I think one of the ironies of writing a book like this is that you write about human goodness and decency, and you have to go on for hundreds and hundreds of pages about the most horrible things that we're capable of as a species, because you 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 have to recognize that we we are not only the friendliest species in the animal kingdom, but we've also become one of the cruelest. I don't think we always were. So as I said, for 95% of our history, we were nomadic and togetherers, and I don't think we were the cruelest species back then, but we have become so. And um, the, the, the dark truth here is that we often do these most horrible things in the name of the good. And that's not, for me, that's not a comfortable message. That's actually very uncomfortable. It's something that makes me anxious and nervous because you start questioning your own intentions, right? It's just that I don't believe that. The sort of veneer theory, the idea that we're all deep down savages, that was became really popular after Second World War again, sort of that there's a Nazi in each and every one of us. And in a way, I believe that trivialized the Holocaust and it trivialized all the atrocities because there was a much more complex historical process in which evil became normalized. And, and ordinary people started to doing terrible things. Yeah, what, one of the encouraging findings, which I've extraordinarily said, we find it very, very hard to kill each other. I mean, looking at America at the moment, you know, one, one wonders. But you talk about the archaeological evidence from the American Civil War, yeah, which is extraordinary. Can you talk a bit, a bit about that, the, the sort of... yeah people not firing their muskets and just reloading them frantically to look busy. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of the striking findings of military historians is that actually most soldiers throughout history find it very hard to fire their guns. Most of them couldn't do it. So indeed, we've got the example of the Battle of Gettysburg where they found thousands and thousands of muskets after the battle that were loaded twice or three times or in some cases more than 20 times. And they couldn't understand it. Like, why were these soldiers loading their guns multiple times? It's not, I mean, you don't do that. That's not, they, and the, these soldiers like had received. They're front-loading jobs, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And, and they had received really good training. They knew how to load a gun and how to fight. But then uh, historians realized that there m- must be a simple explanation. Uh, just keep, if you kept loading your gun, which, you know, it, it takes a while. It's just a perfect excuse not to shoot. Right, and if you've already loaded it once, then you load it another time. You load it another time. Right? It's just a, uh, and uh, I mean, this is obviously just one anecdote, but there, there is now actually uh, uh, a consensus among military experts that just average soldiers who are, have just been drafted, like average civilians, most of them find it very hard to actually kill the enemy. They can do so if you help them. So with the, the, the right technology, if you increase the distance, for example, uh, with artillery, it becomes much easier. We know that in the First World War, around 70 to 80 percent of all the casualties uh, were caused by artillery, which is, I mean, it's much easier to push a button than have an explosion far away. And you can also sort of psychologically train people to become more violent. And this is, I think, what we see happening in the U.S. as well right now. I mean, these police forces who do these kind of things have sort of gone through a whole psychological process in which they have become capable of dehumanizing other people and, and conditioned themselves to, yeah, sort of to destroy their own empathy. So it's, again, I'm not trying to downplay this in any way. It's it's such a terrible truth about us that we are capable of this and that we can do this. But I don't think it's it's very natural either. 
Because, I mean, it's clear that we like food and we like sex because it's good for us, right? You don't need to explain anyone that eating is just nice, right? And you need it in order to survive. But then with violence, it's very different. You have soldiers who can't do it. Then you teach them how to do it. They go to a war. They kill an enemy. They come back traumatized with PTSD. That suggests to me that it's not what we're born to do. Now, the veneer theory has rested, at least in the field of social psychology, mm-hmm. for the last half a century or more on, mm-hmm. you know, a handful of really, really resonant studies. And you made it mm-hmm. your business to go through it. I'm thinking particularly of Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment, of, of Milgram's yeah. experiments with, with people electrocuting test subjects and with the mm-hmm. Kitty Genovese case, which I think many will remember, that, mm-hmm. which, which goes on to the bystander effect. You know, what did you discover when you looked into these? I mean, you don't go as far as to call Philip Zimbardo a fraud, but you get pretty close. Yeah. I used to believe in all these experiments. You know, I've written books in the past, articles and did lectures where I would mention the Stanford Prison Experiment as sort of an example. Look, this can happen. You have these ordinary students, you know, from good families and they've been raised in a good way. They They call themselves pacifists. But you put good people in an evil situation, you, you, you make them guards, and you give them power to do whatever they want, and they quickly turn into savages and monsters. Right? So again, an example of this veneer theory that just below the surface, there's a Nazi uh, in each and every one of us. I used to believe that, but now I know that it's actually a hoax. So what's happened is that the archives have opened up, and in this case, there's been a French sociologist pretty extraordinary that it took a French sociologist who had some kind of documentary project. He wanted to make a film. And in order to do that, he was the first one to go into the archives of the Stanford Prison Experiment. His name is Thibault Letexier. And he wrote a book about the experiment with the title, The History of a Lie. And I don't think he sort of overplays his case. That's a pretty good summary of what, what's going on here. So we now know that Philip Zimbardo, the psychologist who did the Stanford Prison Experiment, specifically instructed his students, the student guards, to be as sadistic as possible. Then many of those guards said, you know, from day one, they said, I don't want to do that. It's not who I am. You know, if it were up to me, we were just, we would play cards, have a good time, listen to some music. Then Simbardo said, you don't understand. I need these results because then if I have these results, I can go to the press and say, look, prisons are horrible environments, right? We need to reform or abolished the whole prison system in the United States. And that's what you want, right? You're a pacifist hippie. Come on, help me with this. And then a couple of the students went along. He got his footage. Uh, He immediately went to the television a couple of days after the experiment. And it ended up in all the textbooks of millions of psychology students around the globe. It became the the most famous experiments in all psychology. It was never published in a good academic journal. I mean, I I asked the French sociologist about this, Thibault Letexier. I asked him, can we still learn something from the Stanford Prison Experiment? He said, well, it's a pretty good example of everything that can go wrong in science because pretty much everything goes wrong there. So yeah, I would describe it as a hoax, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yeah, Was it never, never properly peer-reviewed? No, no, no. And actually, it was replicated one time by the BBC. This is a fun story, actually. So what the BBC thought in the, uh, the beginning of reality television, right, 20, 25 years ago, they thought, this is awesome. We got to do this on television. It will be great for ratings. So they asked two British psychologists, Alex Haslam and Steve Riker, they asked them if they could, you know, do the experiment again. 
but then for, for television. And these psychologists said, yes, we'll do that, but only if we're in control and only if we do not sort of instruct the, the guards or the prisoners how to behave. And the BBC made a big mistake then. They said, yes, okay. So what happened is that the BBC experiment started and, well, I've watched all the episodes and I'll never get those hours back from my life. You know, it's the most boring show ever. So it's already in the first episode that one of the guards says, you know, can't we just talk this out as human beings? And in the last episodes, they're all sitting together in the cantina. They're, they're not guards and prisoners anymore. They, and they are drinking tea together and playing cards. It's, it's really a horrible reality television show. So yeah, very few people uh, managed to make it until the end. But it's, it's, it's sort of what you get. If you just leave people alone on an uninhabited island in a golden cage in a prison, they drink tea and they uh, play cards. <laughs> Well, and Zimbardo turns up again in a little cameo when you talk about broken windows policing and that great vogue for the idea that if you're really tough on low-level crime, yeah, you, yeah. you improve. you're very down on that as a concept. And you say, you know, Zimbardo was kind of there at the beginning of that. Can you explain how he reappeared? Yeah. yeah, so this was an experiment at the end of the 60s. Again, a totally unscientific experiment in which he had cars in, in, in two neighborhoods and he sort of smashed the car and then quickly people in the neighborhood started destroying the rest of the car. And sort of the, the message of, of the experiment was how disorder spreads, right? How it can be this contagious thing. And that was one of the inspirations for the broken windows theory, which was developed by uh, George Calling and James Q. Wilson, two American criminologists. And their idea was that yeah, violence and disorder is indeed contagious. And so you have to crack down on the on the smallest of crimes because, uh, yeah, as I said, it's sort of contagious like a virus. And um, this has been a total disaster, basically. Especially in the US, the theory has been really influential. So police forces around the country started arresting and, arresting and booking people for the smallest of things like, I don't know, standing in the street was uh, blocking a public road or, you know, kids dancing in the subway, yeah, being arrested and fined. It was also really uh, an excuse for institutionalized racism, right? Because most of the people who suffer from this are people of color. And it has destroyed the relationship with communities. I think we see on full display right now in the, in the United States. It's decades of failed policing. And again, I think we need to turn this around. We need to have policing that's all about trusting most other people and actually trusting that most people are pretty decent that's that's where it all starts because then you can actually build a good relationship with a community get to know mothers and grandmothers and aunts and uncles so that they can help you they can become your allies in really resolving the more serious crime so a, a good police agent should be a kind of a social worker but then that's hard work right you really need to educate agents to, to, in order to be able to do that and again, this is a big problem in the United States because on average, police training in the United States lasts around 18, 19 weeks, while in Europe, it tends to be more like two, three years. So it's a, it's a hard work to be a good social worker. Though you very kind of effectively debunk Zimbardo's conclusions, I'm wondering how, you know, in some, to some extent, what you write seems to mirror some of it because you talk about what acquired sociopathy, that powerful people become meaner. And isn't that the same lesson that the Stanford Prison Experiment faulty that it may be offered? Or is there a yeah. distinction? I think in a way it is similar. What I, where I disagree with Zimbardo is that where he says, 
look, this, this happened so quickly. And the Nazi is just below the surface and poof, there you have him. I think that the corruptive effects of power in a hierarchical society, you know, it takes longer. Uh, you really need to look at the complex historical dynamics at play. So again, it feels to me that all these social science experiments from the 60s, they trivialized, trivialized the crimes of the 20th century. They were like, oh, this can quickly happen. But if you want to understand the Holocaust, well, I'm not sure if someone's ever going to do that. But you need libraries full of books on all the different mechanisms of dehumanization, of the bureaucracy, of the technologies. Of You need so much. So just the idea that you can do a simple laboratory experiment and say, see, this is, this is how I explain it. I mean, I think it really trivializes it all. Now, towards the end of your book, you start to speak about what you think are the institutional implications of you know your findings and the idea that we might might be able to build our institutions around a more sociable and optimistic view of humankind and you're quite down on capitalism as a whole i mean i one of the points seems to me that maybe it's easy slightly underread someone like adam smith you say oh you know he's he's the invisible hand he's he's co-opting selfishness doesn't he also make the point, at least in the theory of moral sentiments and in his lectures on jurisprudence, that actually this whole capitalist system doesn't work except for in the presence of trust, that trust yeah. underpins it, that yeah, trust yeah. in contracts, yeah. trust in institutions, that you, know, you believe that your money is, your paper money is worth something? Yeah. I mean, is yeah. that, that not something closer to your side of the, the fence? Excellent than... point. Excellent point. And I think I write in my book as well that... Adam Smith was a much more nuanced thinker than than people than some people believe, right? On the one hand, sort of his theory of markets was indeed, well, let's just let the selfishness w do the good work for us, right? Private vices, public benefits, that, that idea. But then on the other hand, he had a very layered and nuanced view of human nature, right? He indeed also em emphasized our capacity for kindness in, in cooperation, etc., what I think is interesting about these Enlightenment philosophers, and David Hume, was, he made this really explicit, is that he said that we have to believe something in theory that we know is false in fact. So he said this literally, that we have to assume that most people are selfish on a political level, even though we know that is wrong. And I think this is, well, I call it one of the, like the, one of the great mistakes of the Enlightenment, because what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. So assumptions are ne never merely assumptions, right? You start designing your institutions around those assumptions, and then you bring out what you assume, right? Your, your theory of human nature will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think this is what we've seen. Uh, you can look at all the examples. Think about the classic British boarding school, right? Based around the values of hierarchy and competition. What kind of people does that produce? And can we turn that around? Think about you know, organizations like the, the financial sector in the, the, of the city of London, right? Again, sort of this Hobbesian world where most relationships are nasty, brutish, and short. Is that inevitable or is it what we've created in a way? That's, that's sort of the question I'm, I'm asking. And, and, and indeed, the, the second half of the book is about sort of lots of examples of, of institutions and people who have managed to turn this around and then indeed build a school, for example, based on the idea that most kids are naturally creative and cooperative. And uh, yeah, you end up in very different kind of places if, once you start doing that. Well, the, the workings of, of a market, I'm, I'm curious to go, you talk, mm -hmm. you don't say, you know, I am a communist, but you say, 
a version of the, you know, where people would raise the obvious objection, which is like, we want a post-capitalist society, but we've looked at communism and that didn't work out so well. You seem to be offering mm -hmm. a version of the, well, it's never been properly tried. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. To be honest, I think this whole debate about capitalism versus communism, that feels very 80s to me. I don't know. Sometimes markets work best. Sometimes state comes up with the best solution. Sometimes we need a third way, like the commons, where just people democratically manage something on their own. There's lots of great examples of that. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be dogmatic about any of that. And I also see the extraordinary progress we've made in the past 30 to 40 years, right? We are richer, we are healthier, we are wealthier than ever. I am wondering, though, how sustainable it is. So, yeah, let's not be too dogmatic about it. But let's, I mean, and let's also recognize that sort of the market fundamentalism, the idea that market forces can basically solve everything has, 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 has had disastrous consequences in the past 40 years. And it's not, it's not only me saying that, I think that's, that's becoming quite mainstream. I read the uh, editorial in the Financial Times at the beginning of April, where the Financial Times was talking about how we need to reverse the policy direction of the past 40 years and start thinking about, you know, higher taxes on the rich, a basic income. Yeah, I think in many ways that would actually improve the, the working of capitalism. And it, uh, in many ways, I'm trying to s save capitalism. Yeah, so I think it could work much, much better. The line, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a good point. Uh, people tend to think that there's only one variety of capitalism, but there are many. I mean, Norwegian, Norway is, is capitalist and it's, it's working, doing much better than the US. In the 1950s and the 1960s, we had much higher taxes on the wealthy. Right, marginal tax rates of ninety percent for the very rich, and we had higher economic growth back then, and we have more innovation. So, I think we can do much better. Leaving tax momentarily aside, I wonder one of the things that seems to underpin most market democracies, you know, whether they're the sort of nice capitalism or nasty capitalism, depending on how you want to look at it, there's the is a pricing mechanism that's based on the idea you price goods on the assumption that people, when they're thinking about what to buy and what price they're prepared to pay, are thinking about themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not thinking about the externalities of, you know, will buying this, you know, help the vendor. They're thinking, mm -hmm. is this what I need at a price that suits me? Which seems yeah. to be based on that essential idea of individualism and selfishness. Is there a mechanism for pricing goods that doesn't or couldn't fit that model i mean it seems mm -hmm. to me pretty wired down at the bottom of our systems of exchange mm -hmm. i agree and i think that markets and sort of this price mechanism can be an incredibly useful tool i just think it's important to keep in mind that markets are not these forces of nature they're not natural they're always shaped and designed and often by those in power and there are all there are a lot of markets that are unnecessary as well think about pirates in the 70th century they had this market in which uh, they tried to recruit people who were very good at looting and raping and torturing other people. And then they could, you know, uh, enter ships and steal everything. And uh, imagine someone would have said in the 70th century, well, let's abolish piracy. And then all the pirates would have said, yeah, but what about our jobs? You know, and uh, this is just, uh, if, you, if you think it's not good enough, then let's at least introduce more competition, more pirates. Um, Obviously, we just needed to remove the whole demand for piracy. We should just abolish pirate, uh, piracy uh, altogether. If you then look at the mother economy, you see a lot of people who have great skills. You know, I mean, it wasn't, wasn't easy to be a pirate. You need to be really good at it. And it's also not easy to be a good 
tax accountant or something like that to help multinationals to pay as little as possible in taxes. But apart from the looting and the raping, you're basically like a modern pirate, right? You don't add, add anything to society. And that's, I think, one of the great tragedies of our time is that we've got so many of these really smart people who are way too smart to be a banker. They're way too smart to be a tax lawyer or whatsoever. They could come up with great things. They could be thinking about the cure for cancer or build a flying car or let Elon Musk help go to Mars, right? They're wasting their talents. Um, so here, what you need, I think, is uh, a redesign of those markets. And I think government can play a really useful role in there to make sure that people actually have the ability to use their talent in a yeah, more productive way. Uh, can I just, just end by asking, that, that sort of Davos moment that went around the world, did you, did you anticipate what, what the result was going to be? of saying what you said. I mean, were you thinking this is this is a, a sort of viral, viral moment? Did you think that they'd be as surprised hmm. as they were at what you said? Huh. Well, you know, you don't really engineer viral moments, but I, I had good fun sort of preparing the speech. Uh, I, I, it was my first time at Davos and I, I find it a very uncomfortable experience. People think that if you go to those kind of places where the elites are conspiring to take over the world, etc., or, or keeping control, they tend to think that, oh, they're all nasty and greedy people. That's not the case. They're very friendly. They're lovely. You know, you've, they're, they're, that's, and that is exactly the problem. They have sort of live in a world where a certain kind of worldview has become very easy and comfortable for them so that they can talk about all these wonderful things about feminism and about doing something about climate change, while at the same time they came in with their, came in with their private jet. That the, and that they don't pay any taxes. That is what's so uncomfortable. And it's also the, the, one of the great paradoxes of my book is that on the one hand, I argue that people are friendly and we've evolved to be friendly. But on the other hand, that is exactly the problem because friendly people don't change the world. Right? You need to be nasty and difficult and arrogant and unrealistic and unreasonable to, to make change. So yeah, it's a paradox. It's not a contradiction. It's a paradox that. That's a good place to end. Rutger Bregman, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for our next episode. Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.